Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. On June 21st, Against Me singer and punk rock icon Laura Jane Grace tweeted that she just hung out with Rob Bell, trombonist of ME330, and that, quote, teenage me was freaking. This beautiful pro-ska tweet was not the first time in the last year that she's shown off her love and knowledge of the genre. Ska fans have taken notice and have been curious about her relationship to ska. As our guest today, we get to the bottom of her ska roots and learn just what she thinks about the genre right now in 2021. I love that when you go on Twitter, ska Twitter specifically, it's all people who love ska, ska bands, and Laura Jane Grace. (laughs) Yeah, it started somewhere last year, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure where it started, but it was such an interesting cross-section of people. And ska Twitter is so nice. I think that's... Maybe why she feels comfortable posting there. Or maybe she doesn't even realize she's posting there. But sorry, Laura Jane Grace, you're Scott Twitter. I want to read something. I think the current Scott revival is a sign of just how emotionally vulnerable we all are after this past year. That was you. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. It was me. I said that. I did. Yeah. I did. I got to own it. I said it. I love it for a couple of reasons. The reason I love it is because usually people outside of ska so completely misunderstand ska and the ska subculture that they always come out with like comments about how happy it is and how happy everyone is. And But this is a comment that shows awareness, I feel like, of ska and of ska people. I want to know what prompted this tweet first off. I, I think I was probably listening to some ska music actually and that was what prompted the tweet um other than other than seeing or, or or being aware of like a lot of a lot of ska bands getting traction right now and and getting recognition and having records come out that are well received and it does feel like that there's a little bit of a revival happening but i definitely um i associate ska music with with good times and good memories like Traditional ska music specifically um, 
whenever my band's on tour, whenever Against Me's on tour. Um, that's like the music that's put on backstage when we're all just hanging out and it's like, it's, you know, got to be chill, good vibes, right? Um, or, or like at a festival when you got your own little, uh, own little world set up by your bus or something like that, you know, a bunch of folding chairs and everyone's hanging out and talking. Put on some ska music in the background and it just like completes the vibe. It makes me feel a certain way inside, you know? I definitely accept joyful as a descriptor for ska. I think um, it is it does sound joyful, but I also think that it's complex lyrically. And like so many musicians definitely use the, you know, juxtaposition of, of like, you know, sad lyrics or serious lyrics to the joyful sound. And I feel like that's definitely something that's really cool about ska, generally speaking. For sure. But, you know, that's like... That's not every band. Like, so, I mean, any genre, you're going to have bands that have lyrics like, bum, bum, bumblebee, bumblebee, tuna, I love bumblebee, bumblebee, tuna. There's no deep hidden pain in that song, you know? Or maybe there is. Maybe there is. There's totally silly ska, but that's great. I mean, we can have silly ska, we can have serious ska, we can have the whole gamut. What was the bands that you were becoming aware of that you started to see that there was a revival happening? Well, right now, particularly, I mean, I, I just this past Friday had like an interview and stream thing on Vans Channel 66 uh, with Reed, for, we, Reed Walcott from We Are The Union. Um, I know their record is doing really well. And then the the Jeff Rosen ska um, record, the, the, the ska <laughs> dream reimagining of No Dream or whatever. Um, I know that's been really well received. So those two in particular, I guess, is like, actually all i have to point to as there's a ska revival but it feels like a pretty <laughs> full bone ska revival when pitchfork is like giving ska records good reviews there's something up you know yeah you've been tweeting about ska for at least the last year year and a half i guess i i, I guess i've always had a like complicated relationship with ska um in, in that sometimes it makes me uncomfortable that i like it um, and I know that's stupid. I should just like it, you know, but I guess it goes back to like insecurities I had as a teenager and being at shows and wanting to skank, wanting to dance um, and and feeling inhibited and like I couldn't. Um, but that being said, I, I, I have or, or back in the day, you know, I, I, I did I did push through that and I did skank at a couple of shows. Uh, I was I was pretty inebriated at them. Um uh, but nonetheless, like it was always a blast because that's what's great about skanking and, and ska in that way is like you don't really need to know how to dance that well. You can do the moves pretty easily, you know. Um, but it's just one of those things where it like it it makes me feel weird inside sometimes and I don't know how to explain it. I'm sorry that it does, but it does, you know. I think it's it, we all kind of came up during that same period of the um late 90s where there was the big the big ska boom there was definitely a lot of guilt associated with liking it beyond a certain point i think i think we can all relate to that well it, it like came it became something else like it to you know it, it's a real shame I, I i feel like um scenes have changed in a way uh where i really have an appreciation for the way it was when i was getting into punk rock specifically in south florida um, I guess maybe it was it was really isolated there. You know, you're all, you're all the way at the bottom of Florida. Not a lot of bands toured down there or whatever. 
Um, but the scene was really made up of like, you know, there was the street punk kids and the crusty kids. Um, and then there was like mods and then there was skinheads, like anti-racist skins. And there was like rude boys and rude girls, you know, and everyone would hang out at the same diner and would go to the same shows. And then there was like the emo core and the straight edge kids and even the Christian hardcore kids, like everyone would be at the same shows. And I remember there was this one zine uh, in South Florida that had like a, a a drawing of everyone hanging out at this diner called Jerry's Diner. And it was like everybody was represented like from that, you know, like it, all, all the styles were in the picture drawn there. And it was really cool, you know, and like, I don't know, rude boys, rude girls, like they always look so sharp, you know, like um, not to be confused with sharps, but um, <laughs> like the look is tight, you know, it just is. Tell me a little bit about the scene back then. Like, what were some of the local bands and uh, what were the kind of the bands that toured through regularly? Well, Florida had a great ska scene, uh, particularly like the Tampa St. Pete area. Magadog, I saw multiple, multiple times. Um, there was this band, I think they were from Tallahassee, called Bacone Dolce. Um, they were they were brilliant, really good. Um, and then there was like, uh, who is it? The Usuals. They were the, like the ska band on... Uh, no idea records and um but there was a lot of ska bands that toured to florida too like i I remember seeing mustard plug back in the day mu330 back in the day um and i i you know i I saw the specials too 1997 the specials came through uh tampa and i went to that show and i skanked at that show and it was fantastic and i loved the specials always loved the specials you know it was one of those bands um against all authority Oh yeah, I'm totally spacing on against all authority. Against all authority yeah. as well. From they were Miami, Fort Lauderdale, East Coast. You know, I was actually talking to somebody um, yesterday about, and they were they were from South Florida, and they said that it's funny you said Emmy Three Thirty and Mustard Plug because they said those specific names to me too. They said, yeah, South Florida, not a lot of bands came through because it's so far away, but you know, bands like a lot of Midwest bands did like ME230 and Mustard Plug because I guess maybe, I'm not sure if it just wasn't as far or maybe bands from the Midwest didn't, were more accustomed to just sort of those random cities and maybe the West Coast bands weren't. I think it was the Magadog connection too. I think like whatever was happening in the ska scene and the punk scene in Tampa, St. Pete, like I think a lot of those bands became friends uh, with MU330 and, and, um, and like, uh, specifically there was this record store in, in Fort Myers, Florida called Offbeat Music that I think were friends with everybody too, like Mustard Plug, MU330. And like, so they would come down to Fort Myers and play in Fort Myers at Offbeat Music. And that was like, no one did that. You know, Blink-182 did one time. Um, and, it, but other than that, like, and that was way before there were, you know, anything, um, but no one really came down there, but those, they, those bands did. I remember coming down to Fort Myers on tour in like 98, 99. And I remember the shows being totally awesome. It's so good. And I remember it was weird because we would play, my band was Link 80 and we played um, like, we would play like the night after like Earth Crisis or Strife. And the crowd would be almost the exact same type of crowd, like getting on the stage and like getting on the microphones. And it was really a cool experience i i always thought of um florida as like mutant california <laughs> <laughs> there were parallels for sure yeah yeah for sure 
Mm-hmm. Mostly mutant just because of the bugs. Giant <laughs> bugs. There are there are bugs and, and lizards and alligators and all that stuff. Yeah. My one experience playing a show in Florida was um that my band I had a band Flat Planet, we weren't very big, but we played in Tampa and we were play we played at some like Christian center of some sort. And it was one of those places where it was a whole bunch of adults who were Christians who were trying to create like a safe space and they weren't preaching at you, but you know, they wanted to let you know that they're a Christian and they would let all these like punk bands play. And, uh, but they were also super weird too. And like we played at this space and then there was like 10 people there. And uh, I don't know. I, I just remember it being a Christian space. And I just remember being like, that's so weird. It might've been the refuge. Okay. And that might've been it. That was a club that was like Christian run, but it was actually like, it was Christian run, but it was like pretty dingy and dirty inside still. Like it felt like you were still in a real, real rock club. Like they were like, you know, we love God, Jesus, but we're not cleaning. Um, (laughs) um, And, and, but that was, but you know, my, my first punk bands played shows there. um, And, and a lot of our first shows were at churches uh, because the churches would allow shows to go to happen and no place else would, you know, and my parents like, or my mom was okay with dropping me off at the refuge because of that association, even though me and my friends weren't about anything like that. We were just happy to have a space, you know? What was it like playing these churches? Were they totally cool about whatever you wanted to do or did they have rules like no cussing? Sometimes they would do the no cussing thing. And um, I remember that in particular with one time because my band was covering an Operation Ivy song. We were covering Officer. And, you know, it starts off with the, oh, fuck you. Um, And it was like this big debate, like, are we going to do it? Are we going to, you're going to do it, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to do it, you know, and and went ahead and did it. And then what what are they going to do? You're just told to not come back and play, you know, but eventually you're allowed back in anyways down the road. I don't know. It was, it wasn't that big of a deal. They didn't really have that, that, that much, much power to wield when it came down to it. Back to your tweets a little bit. You had one recently about an Operation Ivy reunion. All right, let's get down to brass tacks. This is what we're talking about. All right, this is what we really came to talk about, okay? (laughs) (laughs) This is the only reunion that matters anymore. Like, there is no other punk band that would would make a difference of getting back together. Like, some people will be like, oh, Fugazi or Minor Threat. But it's like, you don't want to see those bands get back together. That would actually ruin those bands, you know? Like, those bands were about something in a different way. Operation Ivy, though, come on. Like, what the hell is the holdup here? Like, do it. Make everyone happy. That would be, (laughs) after this past year and a half, if Operation Ivy headlined Riot Fest, everyone would flip out. Mm -hmm. Like, that band put out one record, and the impact of that record has, has lasted how long? You know, like, that's a classic record. And, I mean, Green Day goes on tour and plays Knowledge every night still. You know, like give us an Operation Ivy reunion. I don't care if it's the same drummer. They can get a different drummer to fill in. I just want Jesse Michaels up there on stage and I want Matt Freeman on bass and I want Tim Armstrong, <laughs> excuse me, Lint on guitar. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was talking to Brent from We Are The Union and he was saying, I'm hearing rumors that they're going to reunite Operation Ivy for Riot Fest. And I just went, oh man. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, and I was like, we both had the same thought. I really don't want to have to fly to Riot Fest 
but we both were <laughs> going to do it if it happened. And then uh, I have a friend, Ben, who worked for Riot Fest for years, who was a kid we used to stay with on tour, uh, Ben Perlstein. And I, I was texting him about something else. And I was like, hey, I heard something that you guys were talking about trying to get an Operation Ivy re- reunion happening. And Ben just sends me back the emoji that's just the <laughs> eyes with no mouth. Just like, <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> all right, keep, keep your secrets. Someone has to be working on it out there. Someone is working on it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the beginning of, of the campaign right here. Like this moment, you know, the three of us will go forward from here and really keep pressing on these people until something breaks. If the fans can make a director's cut of the Justice League happen, we can make an Operation Ivy reunion happen, right? It's, <laughs> again, like, you know, fucking Lint and Matt, like, they're st- they still are in practice. They still play music. They're out there. Jesse Michaels still sings, right? He still does stuff. What's the holdup? What is the holdup? Well, Aaron, you saw Dave Mello for your book, right? Yeah. Dave Mello is a lovely individual, actually. So let's let's make sure Dave's in this reunion. All right. Dave can come, too. I'm, I'm down <laughs> for the full real thing. I'm just saying usually it's usually it's the drummer that is the holdup with these things, because like out of all the members, if somebody gets out of shape and it's the drummer, that's the <laughs> hardest to then pull it off. You know, you can have the guitar player up there gasping for air the whole time, but like the drummer's got to hold it down. Right. I also feel like, I mean, also just backing up to what you said about a Fugazi reunion. I mean, Fugazi played for a really long time. Like, if you got a chance to see him, you got a chance to see him, I feel like. And I saw him, so I'm good on right. a Fugazi reunion. I don't know. Yeah, need me that. too. So did Aaron, so we're good. <laughs> I never got to see Operation Ivy, you know? But they were like, they, they were a band that, that and, and it was weird, like, because there were a couple, like, ska core bands that could do that back in the day where they really bridged a gap in high school where, like, normies kind of were into it. You know, like, your your friend who was not punk at all, who just wore kind of baggy jeans and had a backwards baseball cap, but not the kind that was adjustable, like a fitted baseball cap backwards and and would maybe every once in a while wear wear a band shirt or something like that. Like, they loved Operation Ivy, you know, like... that everyone who heard operation ivy would get into operation ivy and uh i just i just think that it would uh be way more successful than anyone could ever anticipate oh yeah definitely <laughs> i really want want it to happen more than anything how many records do you think they sold how many how many copies oh. of energy did lookout records sell to me alone i think i've bought that same record 10 times <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> Like I've definitely bought it on like I definitely bought it on CD several times. I've bought it on vinyl. I've bought it. I'm pretty sure I owned it on cassette. Yeah, same. I still have it on cassette. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's got to be an insane number. When I when I talked to Dave, he was telling me so because it was like two years after that album came out that they really started to get that infamy. Like it wasn't even right when they broke up. It was like two years later. He was telling me that he was on tour with Schlong. And you just started getting these like royalty checks and people were coming up to him, wanting to talk to him about Operation Ivy. But it was like, you know, like, you know, in the, in the nineties, it was like after the, the band had broken up for a while. So it's interesting how they, not only was it after they broke up, but it was a little while after they broke up that it really started to get, really started to get going. I just to say though, like it was really, really exciting for me when you shared that article that I wrote 
and mentioned the uh, reunion and we've got to make the reunion happen. That was just, that was, <laughs> that was a funny, like flash exciting moment to see that tweet. <laughs> well, I'm happy to share the article again, a team effort. We're all pushing for this here. You know? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and you, you, you gotta, like, I feel like you just got to put it there in the collective consciousness and, and, and keep the idea going, you know? And I, I've definitely like, I'm, I'm sure that eventually Riot Fest will get a restraining order against me or block. If they don't already have me <laughs> muted on Twitter or blocked, I'm sure they will soon enough. Cause I I've taken that attitude of just like, I'm just going to keep pushing for it. You know, just keep like, I know that it, it's not even the, the person who runs the Riot Fest Twitter's job to book the bands, you know, but they got to have somebody's ear where they can be like, ah, oh, it's unrelenting. And if we get enough people <laughs> to, to, to just tweet at them constantly, again, you know, like we can make this happen. Restore the Snyderverse. <laughs> like make <laughs> restore Operation Ivy. Bring the energy back to Riot Fest. We there's a slogan here that'll catch on. We just gotta explore it a little. How long have you been uh, tweeting at Riot Fest to get Operation Ivy back together? For a couple years now, actually. I, I I put that out idea out there a couple of times, but I definitely have harassed them about other things too, you know, and so, like when the Misfits <laughs> were doing that first reunion, I was like, you need to have against me play because I want to see the Misfits. So, <laughs> and it worked that time, you know, and, and that maybe that's, maybe that's, uh, you know, where they went wrong is that they gave in to me that time. And now I'm like, now you're going to make Operation Ivy happen. <laughs> <laughs> he was drunk with power now. Totally, totally, you know? Can you remember when you discovered Operation Ivy? Yes. And, I, you know, I, I discovered Rancid first. And I remember vividly when um, Brett, and, Brett Reed and Lars hosted 120 Minutes and, like, watching that. And there were so many videos that they played where I was whoa like they played london calling the london calling video and i had heard the clash at that point but i didn't know the video um and they played the anti-nowhere league and i think they played the pixies and it was a really that was a formative episode of 120 minutes right um and i got really into the the first three rancid records but i think i had heard the first two and then i discovered operation ivy and put it together that it was it was like oh, oh oh okay you know like no one handed it to me and was like this this is the people from rancid or whatever i like had to kind of draw those conclusions on my own but they had the cd at the mall like i know i bought the cd at the mall um but i listened to that record to death and i would like you know i started out playing bass in in uh punk bands which is why i think i you know I would I would come home from school and I would just play along to my records and I would play along to a lot of ska records because I really enjoyed playing ska bass lines. Um, but I learned every Operation Ivy bass line and I tried to learn every Rancid bass line. But, you know, um, Matt Freeman's skill level is insane. Yeah, he flexed a little bit harder on those Rancid recordings. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Maxwell Murder solo comes to mind. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What were some of the other ska bands that you were into at that time or that you were playing along to? Um, I really loved Desmond Decker. Um, I still love Desmond Decker. Uh, so that was like, I remember I got that CD early on. And again, the specials, like, loved playing along to the specials record, with listening to that. Um, I liked Madness, but I remember getting the whatever first madness record or on cd or whatever and it didn't really grab me that much like one step beyond was a great song but i was like eh. um 
but uh yeah i'm just I'm, those are that's that's kind of that's kind of where i was at other than the ones i've already mentioned of like magadog and and uh and um me330 and uh bacone dolce and uh the usuals and there was like i i remember we had skank, a skank and pickle record my friend cuz i i had like a best friend his name was dustin and we would trade a lot of records if because we only had so much money to spend on on music right so one of us could get one thing the other would get the other and we'd, we'd trade or, or make each other copies you know on tape um and i remember he got skank and pickle and i wasn't that into skanking pickle but i really appreciated the name and the aesthetic <laughs> <laughs> yeah skank and pickle were probably like that was my introduction to ska and it was my favorite band for like that period but I don't feel like they recorded very well, unfortunately. Like the songs just sounded way better live than they did on those records. Right. So, I mean, I think it's unfortunate that they, and I think that's one of the reasons why they're sort of like um, kind of a more lost band from that area because they were so big in the 90s. They were playing huge shows in the mid 90s before they broke up. But then it's like, you know, yeah, it's like sort of an obscure name to people who weren't part of that scene now. Yeah, I never got to see them play. But again, like the the scenes were really integrated there where it was like, I don't know, like a, a good mix of, of ska music, punk music, hardcore music, and like emo core. When emo meant a different thing, like when emo meant headbands and uh, straight edge tattoos. <laughs> was your introduction to ska then through the local bands and the local scene? Or did you hear, you know, like it from the bigger bands first? It was it was from local bands and the local scene. I remember actually the first show I saw at at uh, Offbeat Music. It was this band called No Nothing, and I'm not sure if you'd technically classify them as a ska band. They definitely had a ska thing to them, but they were maybe a little like more. They were like they were like zany, you know, like for lack of a better word. I remember the drummer had like a comically small splash cymbal. And that was like part of the gimmick, you know, like, um, <laughs> but it was the first show I ever saw in a record store. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I bought, you know, bought the tape or bought the CD or whatever. Uh, but Offbeat in general, they had a lot of ska bands come through. It was owned by Sam and Debbie, uh, this couple, and they liked ska music a lot. They were more into that than they were into uh, punk stuff, but it was still all of it. You know, I think where the the split really happened, where it was like, where my internal identity crisis happened in how I feel about ska music had a lot to do with sublime. And I taught, I was, I was actually said something to read Walcott about this uh, last night or the night before, because they tweeted something saying that sublime is actually a really good band. And I was like, are, are you okay? Yeah, I, um, saw that. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. And I, and I didn't necessarily mean it as a, a total slag on sublime, but, but, um, you know, Sublime are one of those bands who, like, the fans kind of ruined it in a lot of ways. And I get it, like, you know, when you break it down, like, Brad had an incredible incredible voice and was an incredible guitar player, and all of them were incredible musicians. And they did have some really, really great songwriting, a lot of hooks, a lot of really catchy songs. And, you know, like, 40 Ounces to Freedom, th that was more arguably a ska record right it had a it, there was a mix on it right there was descendant a descendants cover and there was like punk stuff on there too uh but there was i felt like that was more coming from the ska scene or you know like the people in the ska scene that i knew listened to that record and then when the the major label record or the one that blew up 
um, happened or whatever, then it really diverged into something else. And, and that, but the association was still there. So it's like a confusion, you know, where you're like, I remember this as part of something else and it became something completely different. And all these fans of this are completely, um, distasteful and I don't really want anything to do with what it's come scene wise, you know? Um, but I, I, I think a lot of that has to do with it. I think, I don't know if you'd agree if there was like a, what, what, what was the high watermark? What was the crest point for that, that wave of ska where it was like, and then it receded. I think it was sublime. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about sublime too. Like I generally like them. I think that they're great musicians. They have great songs, but their fans were a problem. And like the song date rape is like such a, I hate that song. And it was like the first, it was the very, very first ska single on the radio in 95. The one, the first one that took off. And it's such a like, such an unfortunate song to be like the first big ska song in the nineties. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we could have done so much better than date rape and we could have done much better with, with other songs on that album. It's like, you don't want to associate with sublime, but they have a lot of really good stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Date rate is a abysmal song and it's a, it's an unfortunate thing that it was the, I mean, it's unfortunate it was on the record in general, but it's unfortunate that it was uh, the lead single in that way, you know? And I remember it being a part of the landscape, like background music at parties and stuff like that. I was interested, like, cause I remember hating that song at the time. And then like, I was thinking about that song now and I'm like, am I, am I reacting to it? Like, you know, like, because it's, you know, I'm older and it's 20 years later, like, and then I went back and I read articles and there was so many articles that were like, <laughs> so angry at that song at the time. I was like, oh, okay. That's weird. That's interesting that it had that reaction at the time too, that it was like, it was put out as like kind of a shock value sort of thing. And people liked it for that reason. And then people reacted to it for that reason too. It wasn't just a like, looking back 20 years later as we've all progressed and now that we think about it it was that's how it was at the time too i guess too for like 14 year old me getting into punk bands and getting into the music then a lot of the a lot of lyrics i had trouble differentiating between or there was like a different context with it you know like hearing like date rape and then hearing like danzig singing about how he wants someone's skull or like, you know, some other thing that was equally as perverse or e equally as profound or fucked up, really, you know, like um, that to me, I was just kind of like overwhelmed by it all and scared by it all because I was scared of older punks and older kids in the scene that you're just trying to fit in, you know, and it's all equally in as intimidating at the time and feels equally as dangerous. But Sublime brought like a frat vibe to ska. And I don't necessarily feel like that was really a component for the most part, even with some of the other like corny bands that were getting popular. I, I feel like that was more associated with like nerdy kids. Right. But they brought that frat vibe, which I mean, I would I take nerdy kids over frat boys all, all every day. The bridge to the frat boys had already been made by the time like real big fish had blown up or like those bands that were like a little bit after sublime, you know? And I really do, I see it like as that there, it was that stepping stone of like Operation Ivy to Sublime to, ah, oh, this is really shitty. 
Um, and, and like, again, that, like that specific type of person, I remember I went to like multiple of them from high school where it was like the, you know, form fitted cap backwards, just jeans and a band t-shirt, maybe, you know, maybe they'd wear a gutter mouth t-shirt or something like that. And like, um, <laughs> you know, like and they really liked Operation Ivy and then they really liked Sublime and then totally. Yeah. I mean, and then, then Sublime, they like influenced this whole wave of like bad reggae bands in the late nineties and early two thousands. And those that got extremely popular and, and still is really popular here in, in California, even use the term Kali reggae. And it's just like, they just took like the dubby sublime songs and then they just made whole bands out of it. And they got like really popular. That shit's so irritating. I can't stand that stuff. That's like a, that's like the next level of like, having a hard time dealing with sublime for you know what the crimes they committed but still liking them nonetheless is sublime also you know if you will remember they had like grateful dead covers right they did like scarlet mm. begonias and you know what sucks <laughs> is that their version of scarlet begonias is brilliant it's so good like it's a really good version of that song um, but like, that's, that's that gap that, that, or that was how it happened. That's where the fratty thing comes in. You know, that's where the like shitty hippie element comes into it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, um, one of your early bands playing knowledge. Oh yeah. Did you cover other Operation Ivy songs? Yeah, we, we covered, uh, knowledge and then we did sound system and bombshell and, um, officer, as I was saying. And, uh, I think we did caution. Um, I, I think we did everyone, every every single Operation Ivy song at some point. Like, <laughs> I guess that was the advantage of them only having one record, right? But um, it, you know, it was kind of ridiculous. Where I remember playing James, who plays guitar and against me. I remember um, one of his first bands playing a show with one of my first bands. And both of our bands covered the same Rancid songs, the same Operation Ivy songs. <laughs> like, it was all the same covers, you know? What are the odds of getting against me to cover an Op Ivy song? Uh, I, I would be down. I, I, you know, I, I feel like that there was a moment not too long ago. I'm trying to remember where we were, where we were sound checking. And I was like, yeah, let's just do knowledge real quick. And someone in the band was like, what? And I was like, what do you mean? What? <laughs> <laughs> and and there was some kind of realization that some, maybe it was Adam, that they weren't on the same page with Operation Ivy when it came down to it. Or maybe it was Andrew. Um, wow. But it was, it was revel revelatory because I feel like that I take it for granted that everyone has that in just like their musical language, you know? Yeah, that's like saying, I don't, I don't care for Beatles. <laughs> But there are people, there are people out there like that, and yeah, those those people are liars. Come on, it's the Beatles, right? Yep. Yeah, they're just trying to look cool <laughs> or something. <laughs> so okay, here's the idea: Operation <laughs> Ivy, <laughs> Operation Ivy reunion, but it's against me. <laughs> I I I would be down. I I just I I think like would that make the actual Operation Ivy reunion happen though? Like. Because I there I think there is an angle to that, like with how uh, what were they called, Badfish, the like Sublime cover band, where they're out there making mm -hmm. like a million plus dollars a year playing the Sublime covers, and then the surviving members of Sublime are like, hey, wait a second, why can't we go out there and still play Sublime songs? This band's out there playing Sublime songs, making all this money. Um, 
that maybe we need to make something like that happen with Operation Ivy. Like we need to start a legit Operation Ivy cover band with some real like all-star players that will draw a crowd and really like, let's commit to it. You know, like let's do tours. Let's like rip the merch. Let's like, <laughs> and and then once once they see that happening, you know, they'll feel challenged. We just got to get inside their head. I, we got to focus on Tim is what we got to do here. And I think maybe also like it needs to be a double attack here. We got to get inside of Lars's head as well. We got to drive some kind of wedge between Lars and Tim to where like Tim and Matt want to do it, you know, and they're like, we need some space from Lars right now. <laughs> we got to go and do this Operation Ivy thing. Um, so uh, I need help. I need everyone's help in making this happen. This, this is the moment, everyone. <laughs> we got to get between Tim and Lars. <laughs> well, you know, and, and really, because that's like, there was a lot of changes in Rancid when Lars joined the band. You know, all of a sudden it was like Matt wasn't allowed to sing as many songs any, anymore. And I always kind of blamed that on Lars, where I was like, what the hell happened? Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like he got Tim's ear and somehow it's like, yeah, this is the way we should do it. You know, little Sammy was a punk rocker. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> And, and, you know, I love Lars and I love Rancid. I love, I love it all, but also come on, let's, let's, uh, let's make this happen. When you saw, um, Ska at a local level, did you know it was Ska? Like right away, did someone say this is a style of music called Ska or did you just think of it as just a version of punk rock? I, I remember thinking of it as Ska, but at the same time, not really having the full scope of what that meant or what the history of it was. As I said, like I got into Desmond Decker and would listen to, to, to like the old school, like original wave ska stuff. Uh, but, but that was a little after the fact, you know, um, I definitely got into whatever wave that was in the early, early nineties, you know, and I guess that was more of like a ska core type thing. Right. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, and especially if you're getting into Rancid and you're getting into Operation Ivy, that's a very punk-oriented type of ska. Is that, I mean, I assume that's the kind of ska that spoke to you initially, was the the very punk-oriented ska? Yeah, initially, for sure. They were, you know, Operation Ivy was singing, singing about things I could relate to, you know? Um, I was just a white kid in South Florida, you know, which is South Florida, which is the weirdo version of California, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, and and that's what, and, and also like, you know, they, they kind of like, they made it more accessible musically where you could cover the songs. Like a lot of, a lot of Scott music is, is harder to play. And like, it's, I remember having to bridge that gap, figuring out how to play chords for ska music versus like power chords. Cause at first when you try to imitate it, you're still doing the power chords and you're just trying to hit the top three strings. And then you realize like, Oh no, you're just, it's different chords and you're supposed to kind of play those chords on the first or the top, like three, four strings or whatever, but it's not power chords. Yeah. That's a really weird realization to have as a guitar player. Cause power chords are so easy. Once you have that fifth, you're just like, okay, I can move this anywhere. No problem. And then when you realize you have to play ska, you're like, oh, wait, no, now I need to bridge this whole, I have to put my finger across this whole thing. And now I have to, <laughs> if I'm going to put this finger here, it's it's a minor. But if I don't put it here, then it's not a minor. And I remember having lots of discussions about that. Like, no, it's minor here. Minor. I always really liked getting stoned and playing ska music, like at band practice. 
We would do, this is so bad. We would do like a ska version of Brown Eyed Girl, my first band. And we would get like <laughs> Rip Roaring Stoned and just play it over and over and over and over again. The guitarist to my band, he was kind of like, kind of fucked up at first, you know, trying to play ska. And then he um, like got super obsessive and studied theory like hours and hours and hours a day into where he learned how to play every single chord in every single possible way. And I think he was also trying to learn the quickest way to play a chord for, you know, just for the brevity's sake. And once he did this insane exercise, he got really, really good at playing ska. Like he never messed up anymore. So I don't know. I don't play guitar. I don't know. How, I'm just curious what you guys think of that. It made you a better player. Like it made you a better player. If you want to hear uh, direct ska influence in Against Me, uh, the song, the song TSR, The Shit Rules, um, is is ska chords. You know, like it's that 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 was my me flexing my ska chord knowledge. <laughs> I watched the Vans uh, sixty six channel sixty six thing that you did the other day. Oh, cool! One of the songs sounded straight ska. Which song? I missed what name it was, but you were you were playing upstrokes. Huh. Maybe it was <laughs> maybe it was those anarcho punks are mysterious. That 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 has like a I have hold on, I even have my guitar here. Uh, that has like the Yeah. And yeah. we you know, on the first Against Me record too, there was a song called Jamaican Me Crazy. Which is like the the most regrettable fucking song title to put on your first record, uh, but that that song had like a ska thing to it. Uh, but we retired the song specifically because of that. Um, and I remember like that, but that was like an easy icebreaker when we would do our first tours, and you don't know necessarily how to comfortably talk to the audience. It'd be you know that was the one thing I could say was like, okay, this is our ska song. Like, let's see everybody skank, you know, and it would yeah. be a total icebreaker and everyone would, everyone would dance and have fun. Um, and there's something more tasteful about that to me than saying like, I want to see the biggest pit I've ever seen, you know, yeah. like, or something like that. That is, I'll never say that, you know, but I don't mind telling people to, to skank or have a good time dancing. Can we also talk about clip on tuners really quick? Yeah, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> I loved I loved your bit talking about the clip-on tuners and how nobody ever changes the battery. They just throw them away. Why would you? <laughs> I, I changed the battery. I, Ikea sells those little watch batteries, and so I, I buy like a pack of those every time I go to Ikea so I can change my tuner batteries. But those tuners, I have like three or four of those tuners because I'm always losing them. I must have like 20 or 30. I have like a bas <laughs> basket at home that is just full of them because every time I run out of batteries, I just discard them. Um, but I don't want to throw them away because it's like a piece of gear. It's a piece of electronics, but I don't want to pay to tune my guitar. Like that to me, I can't vibe with. I just cannot comprehend the idea of that. That like, because I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sometimes at the end of the year, I'll be like, okay, how much money did I spend on coffee this year? Like just to check myself, see what I'm spending, you know, and like where I could make cuts or like tighten my belt a little bit or whatever. And the idea of being like, all right, I spent 
you know, X amount of money on, on bat on batteries for my guitar tuners. <laughs> it's just, I can't do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you leave the clip on tuner on the headstock of your guitar while you're still playing at home? Yes. But I yes. think it's a distasteful look for like live 100%. It is the worst look. And it drives me especially crazy when people are playing electric and they have one of those on their guitar and they're rocking out. All I can do is stare at it because I'm expecting it to go flying off and hit somebody. Oh, it doesn't look cool. You <laughs> it know, looks terrible. Like, yeah, yeah. And that, but that's another thing about it. So it's like, oh, cool. This like accessory that does not look cool at all. That like I'd be, embar- be embarrassed to see anyone to see me playing with it on there that I got to pay money to tune my guitar with. Yeah. You have one of the regular like stomp box tuner things. Yeah, like a Boss TU2 or TU3 or something like that. Yeah. And I, you know, I have those at home too, but. Sometimes they're not hooked up and then you got to pull out pedal power and all that. So I actually have like a, you know, Strobo soft app on my phone that, oh, nice. um, that is accurate and is like the, it's, it's, that's like, you know, when, when we were making major label records or whatever, like we were, we were like taught to tune with Strobo soft cause it's really fine tuning or whatever. And those clip on ones are definitely not fine tuning, you know? No, they just get you in, in the right ballpark. The the other song I wanted to ask about because I think you and I have an affinity for the same thing is the um, the haunted pool song. Yeah, the rave. I want to talk to you about going to, going to the rave. Yes, so the rave ballroom in in Milwaukee because that place rules. Yes, it rules very much. Yeah. Okay, so I I was there in two thousand six with RX Bandits and we had a whole bunch of free time before the show and then after our set also, and so I. How much have you explored the rave? A ton. Um, I mean, I've been playing there since like 2003 or something like that and have played there at least once every two years since. Okay. So the song's about the swimming pool, but if you get to the door of the swimming pool, if you hang a right, I believe there's a boiler room. Right. Depending on which way you're coming from, but yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You've been into the boiler room. I have. Yes. It looks like something out of like Nightmare on Elm Street. Completely. It's, and then if you go past the boiler room, you end up in the steam tunnels that go around the pool. Right. And you can continue going around the pool and it goes lower and lower. And you can, there's like portholes looking into the pool. Now I, I had to turn around and go back for sound check and I got too scared to go back at night. I was, I mean, even though it was pitch black when I went down there during the day. But I talked to the RX Bandits guys. I talked to Matt Embry, and he said, maybe you can verify this. If you go far enough, there's a ladder that goes down from hmm. the steam tunnels. Have you been to that? I guess I haven't that, gone that far. No. Uh-uh. Okay. He, he, didn't, he didn't actually go down the ladder either, but that's really something I wanted to. And then up in the ballroom, if you climb up the ladders on the sides of the stage – you can go up to the catwalk that goes around the vaulted roof. Yes. Yeah. So you've, you've been on that then. Yeah. And I've been on the roof too. Yeah. Back in the day, like going there, you know, you just kind of like went into the venue and, and you could explore those things freely. Right. right. You know, like go as far as into it as you wanted or whatever. And it was, it was kind of dangerous. I think they even had an incident of someone accidentally falling into the pool and hurting themselves. Um, yeah. And they've, they've put some money into it too. Like they made the dressing rooms a lot nicer and I forget which level it is, but they'll put you in the dressing rooms right by there. And when they do that, like you can't get into the pool on your own anymore. 
So the last time we played there was in like 2018. Um, and after the show, the, whatever venue staff person was like, would you like a tour of the pool area? And we're like, uh, okay. You know, and like there was a band on tour with us and they'd never seen it. So sure. You know, give us the tour. But it was, it was so interesting because they treated it like that, where it was like a tour guided experience and you couldn't go off on your own anymore. And they show you the pool and they take you into the pool and they show you where Mac Miller signed inside of the pool. And they have like a piece of plexiglass over it. And I, it was funny because um, we were with Mercy Union and Benny, who plays drums in Mercy Union, was like at a far end of the pool and was like going up to tag it and put his name. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> he's like, he like, oh, guess I'm not famous enough to tag your pool. Um, and it's like covered in graffiti, you know. But so now they, they, they take it very seriously there at the rave and you can't just explore it. And it's, it's just interesting seeing time pass in that way where something that used to be totally broken down and dilapidated and free for you to crawl all over or inside of or you know like get lost in is now essentially like a tourist attraction that you have to take a guided tour even though it's still just as dilapidated and fucked up and everything but um you know almost 20 years pass right are there any specific details about the rave that you like the most well, the, let's be honest. It sounds like shit at the rave. Like it does not sound good <laughs> on stage in, in it. Um, and it doesn't sound that great out in the audience. Like there's some, some of the rooms are better sounding than others. And if you draw a really big crowd, it's going to sound better than if you don't. But those shows where it's like a half full room, it's just so big and cavernous, you know, yeah. that there's so much sound bouncing around in there. Um, but I love I love thinking about it conceptually, and this is like something that I find uh, continually inspiring about life, and have had demonstrated me, to me multiple times over. Where, you know, when was that place built? Like a hundred some odd years ago, right? And it was a Freemason temple, right, for mm -hmm. for Freemasons to gather and and do whatever they do. And never would those people have thought. Um, yes, one day, 80 years into the future from now, there will be, you know, punk bands that will come and play here every night and it will have nothing to do with Freemasons <laughs> or anything like that, you know, um, that I think is that's that's inspiring to me too, that that the future is going to like work out in this way that you never could have imagined, you know, like I, similar. I, I was thinking about that in context of like Van Gogh, right? Van Gogh, like lived his life in complete obscurity. Like at the time he couldn't really sell his paintings. He'd trade them for food or places to stay. And now they, you know, hang in the most famous museums all over the world. And, and also now like once a year, they'll have hot air balloon races in the Netherlands that are all like the, all the balloons are paintings of his. And that's just so surreal and far out there and like outside of the imagination that stuff like that'll, surely continue to happen that you could never imagine and it'll blow your mind you know and it'll be good too um but i yeah and and so i guess circling back to the rave with that i've honestly never gotten that creepy of a vibe from it you know mm -hmm. like i get that going down into the boiler room looks like the the freddy krueger vibe you know but i've never been down there and like got the cold chills or felt like we need to get out of here right now or anything like that um it, it kind of feels empty to me in a way, like energy wise, definitely not dangerous. But I think also circling back to what you're saying, it, it does feel like trapped in time in a way. And also just the space is so big, not even just the performance part of it, but like the, 
all the like side rooms of the building. I mean, I feel like you could go there, you could be holding a cup of coffee and you could set it down in one of those weird back areas and it would be there like 20 years in the future. <laughs> like the mug would just be sitting there with like the resin from from your coffee still left in it because that like that was the vibe that I got. Like there were areas where you walked through and there were just like stacks of old bowling shoes that it was like they had just put them away. Like, yeah, we'll bowl tomorrow. And then it never happened. <laughs> I think that you should test that theory out. I, I did something similar. There's this club in, I think it's in Budapest. Um, and there's, um, or no, it's Prague, actually, Prague. And there's like a downstairs dressing room. And behind the mini fridge, every time I've gone there, I've hit a couple joints. Um, so that I know that anytime I go there, I just got some joints hidden behind the mini fridge. And they're always there. And it's, I guess, also a testament to the fact that they don't clean the place ever. But yeah. I think that you could probably do that at the at the <laughs> rave, especially because they the way they like decked out the dressing rooms with all, like they, they're all drapey and they got hang things hanging everywhere, you know, uh -huh. to make it feel less cold. So yeah, let's let's try that out. You could just stick something back in the drapery and <laughs> dig around back there next time you you're there and find find what you left behind. Yeah, <laughs> I I used to have like gross white boy dreads, and uh, we played the fireside bowl. And I was outside while I was waiting for the venue to open. And I was like trimming off the like nasty ratty ends of them. And I, I had one that was particularly interesting. That was this kind of weird little curly cue. And I took a piece of duct tape and I duct taped it up over the stage at the Fireside Bowl. And this was like 98. And I stopped touring with that band in 2000. But I, I can look back at pictures from that five-year period. And you can see the piece <laughs> of duct tape over the drummer with like a little gross piece of black hair hanging down from it that's so gross <laughs> <laughs> super gross did you ever play fireside bowl yeah we did we played there a couple times yeah i miss that place a lot yeah i actually i remember really vividly the first time we played there uh it was like on the second against me tour and the person who set up the show was this guy who did a zine with his son and he was a toll booth collector but then did did like did a zine and put, promoted punk shows or whatever. And like, I think his name was Anthony Rayson, if I'm remember correctly, but his son would do all the illustrations and he would write in the zines or whatever. And he booked the show. And, um, I remember being blown away by that place, you know, like it's the fireside and I, I don't know why they don't do shows. I know it's still there, you know? Um, but they don't do shows anymore. Yeah. I think they kind of tried to bring shows back, but it just wasn't the same vibe. Plus they cleaned the place up a little bit. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. You can't clean it up. They got rid of the dread. They ruined they it. They got rid of the dread. They ruined <laughs> it. That was, that was the mystic energy right there. So I love that ska Twitter is just all these ska bands and people who like ska. And then it's Laura Jane Grace. <laughs> <laughs> like mixed in. It's amazing. I, I think Scott Twitter has become like this really kind of fun place compared to like some of the Facebook groups where there's like a lot of like weird infighting. I was wondering if you've, you've had any sort of experience with Scott Twitter overall. Um, I, I guess I, if I have, I haven't been even thinking about it in that way or realizing that I was wait, I was going to say like, is, is there a lot of infighting because, um, because they see everything in black and white. Hey, <laughs> two toned. Good. That Thank you. Good. <laughs> She'll be here all week, folks. <laughs> You're like, I'm so glad you showed up for the podcast. <laughs> There's a thing where it used to be that 
if you were not known for ska, you didn't want to be affiliated with ska, but I feel like that's changed. And you're definitely one of the people that is really claiming or talking about ska that's not like known as a ska musician or anything. Was there anything that sort of, I don't know the first one you did, or if there was just a moment where you're like, I'm going to tweet about ska or I'm just going to keep tweeting about ska. Did you have a good experience tweeting about ska? <laughs> um, anytime I've said anything even remotely negative about ska, people are like up in arms. And I realized that <laughs> real quickly. Uh, sure, yeah. But but I, I thought that was good where I was like, oh, cool. Like there's a lot of love for ska out there. And again, you know, it like it is linked to my past. Like I, I grew up in this, in a scene, in a punk scene that, that there was a lot of ska happening and a lot of ska core bands or whatever. Um, so that's there. And I, I think for a while that just had to, that was something where it was almost denied by people. You know, people wanted to forget that they had that ska pass. Like what was that guy from, wasn't the guy from the bravery in the ska, in a ska band? I know the bravery is like a band from like 15 years ago at this point or 10 years ago at this point, but like still I remember. Scabba the Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the band. But, and that was like a scandal when it got out. Like he used to be in yeah. a ska band, cred gone, you know, like. He and the dude from the killers were having like a public beef. And that's one of the things that came out. And that was like a sharp dagger that got pointed his way. You used to be in a ska band. Right. So, and then the yeah. killers and then, became the biggest band in the world because of that, you know? And then it came out that their drummer was in a ska band. So it was like, whoa. Wait, Ronnie Venducci? Yeah, it used to be Attaboy Skip was the ska band he was in. Oh, wow. I did not know that. He looks like he's riding a jet ski when he plays the drums. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that, but that's 100% accurate. <laughs> I just watched that song exploder with them recently. And I was like, that's an interesting drum technique. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that episode, but I like song exploder a lot. Did you watch the nine inch nails one? I did watch that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really good. I was like, geez, I was not excited about, about it being about hurt. And then once I actually saw it, I was like, wow, this is great. It's undeniable. Now a ska version of hurt. You know, you're taking, you're taking these deep, <laughs> like hurting lyrics. <laughs> I wear this crown of shit. Pick it up. Pick it up. That's got to exist somewhere on YouTube, though. <laughs> oh, you know it exists. Come on. What's the possibility of you taking We Are The Union on tour? I think the possibility is pretty high if we can get a tour in general together, you know? Uh, you know what? Hey, to jump back real quick, too, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out the suicide machines. And the suicide machines definitely, definitely deserve a mention. Uh, cause they were like, I, I probably, probably fourth or fifth show I ever saw suicide machines were an opening, were the opener. And I saw them on the 1997 Vans Warped Tour and they had a similar thing to Operation Ivy for me, like, especially that first record. And they were pretty influential in that way. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Suicide machines are great. Um, the other one that I feel like from that equation is slapstick. Do you ever get to see slapstick play? That was another one. Yeah. They, they, they toured down there pretty often too. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. There was a cut like the, the pie tasters, the toasters. Um, there was a, a couple other bands that are even just coming back to me now, like the New York city ska scene. I feel like, uh, was pretty connected to Florida and would tour down there pretty often. Very cool. Yeah. Cause that'd be like the same as like a band from San Francisco driving down to like Southern California, like coming from New York to Florida. Right. 
somewhat similar. I think it's a little farther. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's, it's a, a little, little farther, farther than that. that. <laughs> I think going from North Florida to South Florida is like it's basically California. Yeah. It's, yes. It's like San Francisco to Southern California. It's more like a band from Seattle or Portland coming down to LA. What's the worst drive on tour? There's that stretch that's like in the middle of the country. That's pretty unavoidable. Any, it, whether you're in the North or the South where there's just nowhere to really play and you're going to have to do a long drive, you know, whether that's getting to Denver and then getting from Denver to wherever you're going or like crossing Montana or driving through Texas, you know, because the shows you like, you'll do Dallas, you'll do Houston, you'll do Austin. And then maybe you'll do like, you know, somewhere in Western Texas too, like San Antonio and El Paso or something like that. But it's a long way to drive. I guess the, across the South is probably mo more shows that you can make happen. But um, in general too, there's, it's like slim, slim pickings when it comes to eating options, uh, touring through some of those areas. but. I'm trying to think. Worst drive. See, like I'm seeing everything through rose-colored glasses right now. Where I'm like, every drive in a van right now just sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. do it. I would do it twice. You know, like just put me on the road. I will never complain again about anything. <laughs> I think that the drive through Wyoming is probably the most brutal because there's really nothing. I didn't tour a lot, but yeah, the San Antonio to El Paso that was the worst one that I had experienced. Just because it's like that's a long one. There's nothing. There's nothing there. I think it's like nine hours or something. But there's nothing to look at, and there's like one gas station or something. I don't know. Yeah, and I think one time I roadied on Skiing a Pickle, and it was like yeah, Denver to um, just to whatever is directly east. What is that town? I don't know. It's like uh, cornfields. There's lots of cornfields. Mm. Yeah, you drive across yeah. the United States, you see a lot of corn. <laughs> that's weird i you know the last tour that we did i remember driving across the u.s and thinking like damn there's just so much fucking trash everywhere like any town we would go to small towns whatever like there'd just be trash thrown along the side of the roads everywhere really bummed me out yeah and i feel like i noticed that too i feel like it's not as bad it, or at least it wasn't back then it wasn't as bad in like canada or even like just foreign countries Good job, United States. Okay, the the worst the 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 worst drive of any tours is the drive home. <laughs> oh shit, that's true. I remember we finished one tour once in in Utah, and somebody brought up this burrito place, Baldos, that was in like Vacaville. They're like, "Oh, I can't wait to get a Baldos burrito," and that was like a like a good like two days drive away. And so all I could think about the whole time I was driving was eating this burrito. <laughs> that's <laughs> just so you know something about adam um he used to film himself <laughs> eating he would go to a taqueria and buy a burrito you know the dumb facebook live feature that nobody used before quarantine yeah i would i would just turn that okay. on and just eat my burrito and then just turn it off when he's done <laughs> and that was it my facebook memories are <laughs> fucking crazy now because of it i like it i had a I had a shadow uh, Instagram account that I was keeping for about two years that was nothing but pictures of vegetarian sausages being cooked in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, you're not doing that account anymore? Uh, well, I told everybody about it and then that took the fun oh, away yeah. about, uh, from it. Like when the, it was like a couple of weeks into the pandemic, I, I, was, I, I, I went too soon. You know, I should have held out a little longer, but I was like, maybe everyone could use a pick me up. Check this out. This is ridiculous. I, 
have an Instagram account that is nothing but pictures of breakfast sausages that I make for my daughter every morning. Just them sizzling in, in the pot, in the pan, you know? Um, and it's called helpful links. <laughs> I want to ask really quick. I'm a parent also. How's parenting one in the quarantine and two as a, as a band person? Quarantine parenting is stressful, yeah. you know, um, navigating remote oh, schooling is stressful. Um, very stressful. And I think that, you know, my daughter handled everything really well, but I worry that like for every kid of this generation, you know, that there's going to be some kind of, some kind of, you know, residual from the experience that will have to be worked out later in life. Touring as a music or being a parent as a musician though, uh, is pretty fantastic when it comes down to it. Like I'm hopeful that my daughter fondly remembers traveling at a young age i brought her mm -hmm. on tour you know um ridden on the bus uh she's over it at this point like she doesn't want to come to the show she does not want to see me play um but that's fine <laughs> i get it you know um so i'm hopeful that she remembers that you know and that it's expanded her her worldview in some way and then as most most musicians will say too it's like yeah it's tough while you're gone but when you're home you're home you know and um I don't, I don't, I don't know if she even grasps that, you know, as far as like realizing that other people's parents have to go somewhere and sit for like, you know, however many hours a day and then come back. And that's just, that's, that's it. You know, I took my kids to see a reunion show that we played in 2016 uh, for the Asian man records, 20th anniversary. And they were, they were into it for about a song and a half. And then when they realized they couldn't get on stage and like play with the instruments themselves, they were like masking my wife for her phone so that they could play games on it. <laughs> Meanwhile, people are like stage diving and losing their shit. And they're like, ah, we're, that's fine. <laughs> Should have let them get on stage. play with the I know, right? Probably would have been more avant-garde. I remember you were lamenting like not having any shows lined up. Like, how is that the case? I kind of took us... Uh, uh, slow start at it. I, I, I wanted to be cautious. I didn't want to be one of the first bands out For there. For sure. And, um, and so working on stuff to happen in 2022, you know? But if anything that I've really learned from the fucking pandemic was the value of momentum when it comes to band stuff, you know? Uh, like, you have all that momentum going behind you from 20 years of touring and putting out records, and then that comes to a dead stop it's hard to get going again it's hard to get everything moving again you know and it changed things um the pandemic did and then there's a part of me that like you know i this was kind of my approach where i was like okay the pandemic's happening i want to put out a record during the pandemic i did a, re a solo record with polyvinyl and i did that knowing that then once once we were coming out of this that i could just go immediately out and tour on that record and I figured that there would be a lot of bands that worked on records through the pandemic and as the pandemic was happening, would be putting out their records and starting their tour cycles and immediately trying to go out and hit it. So I kind of almost want to catch like the dip after that, like after this first wave of everybody coming out with their records and doing their tour cycles, I want to be on the off cycle of that. Cause most, cause everyone now is going to be on that same cycle otherwise. And, and it's like, you know, 
sure, everyone had time to work on stuff during the pandemic, but then it'll be back once everyone's touring again to like, okay, you put out a record every two years or every year or something like that and do it all over again, right? Um, and you got to have the bands in the middle cycle where it, it's not everyone doing it at the same time, you know? How do you differentiate your your solo material from your Against Me material? More and more, it's like... Uh, just if if they're if like the rest of the band is okay to play the song or they like it or whatever you know like if they don't i'm like well that's a solo song (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome thank you so much for listening to in defense of ska if you haven't already Subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.